Welcome to the Primal Anarchy Podcast. I am Kevin Tucker, and I'm your host. Uh, This is episode 21. It is now June 20th, 2019. If you're looking for past episodes, most of the players and online hosts and stuff like that will have that, but primalanarchy.org is where you can get all the past ones, and you will see that I put them out irregularly. Uh, Sometimes I kind of do one a week, sometimes one a month. Who knows? Uh, I hope to be more regular, to be totally honest, but uh, it's not always the way that I work. We'll, we'll see what comes of it. Uh, I'm pretty deep in research mode for my book of Gods and Country, uh, so there's a good chance that I will be doing some episodes here and there uh, that just kind of get into some of the details of things that I'm unearthing or things I'm coming across through that research that are just insane because there are a lot of things that are nuts that are about civilization about colonialism about the realities of uh, life within modernity and i just gotta share them uh for now by the way i i do have stuff going up on twitter uh at gathered remains uh, so if you want to see more of my little quips about uh historical dives deep dives or just running commentary on random things that I'm finding, that's a place to get it. And I hate social media, uh, but unfortunately right now I'm trying to get the word out there further, and that means doing things that I don't necessarily want to do. Uh, But yeah, you can find me on there. And also I've got a lot of updates this episode about things with black and green. Uh, Last episode I asked some questions and I sent out a bulk email, some questions as well about what people would like to see. Uh, and also preempting a little bit because my or the second edition of my first book, For Wildness and Anarchy, the second very heavily revised and expanded edition is very, very close to ready. At this point, I've got the quotes. i got everything figured out for that. Uh, I'm going to be doing a fundraising campaign uh, for it. And the fundraising is going to be aimed at covering the costs of printing that book, but also the the stretch goals of it or whatever you want to say. Uh, The the hope of it is that I will be able to wear down some of Black and Green's pretty enormous debt and help keep things moving going forward. Uh, So I'll get a little bit more into that in this episode, but I wanted to start with a couple other things first uh, and... First, let's go to some questions from listeners. And if you have questions, uh, I have said on the podcast before, and I will say it again. uh, If you have a question or a comment or something like that that you want me to read or respond to on air, just let me know. I tend to respond to things sometimes, but I, I, I don't always. And I don't always necessarily specifically ask if that's what people are looking for. Uh, But... Yeah, you can also email blackandgreenpress at gmail.com. That's blackandgreenpress at gmail.com. And if you want to write a letter, it's P.O. Box 402, Salem, Missouri, 65560. That's black and green, P.O. Box 402, Salem, Missouri, 65560. Now, I do know that there were some other questions uh, that people had asked around the last episode, and I did not get to them all. Uh, and some of these ones are also very short, but, you know, things can kind of go on. Uh, what do you believe are the key steps our society can make in the process of decivilizing is one. And so that's a big question. And I mean, I suppose the the starting point for all that is going to be what what is we? Uh, what kind of agency you believe we have within civilization and within any, any effort to decivilize or whatever kind of you know, feral movement that it takes. Uh, the reality of it is, is I, you know, we definitely don't have a platform. We definitely don't have all the answers for that. If we did, then, you know, you probably wouldn't have to ask those kind of questions. It's not that's a bad one. But, I mean, I, I think the biggest thing is going to constantly come down to being honest about what civilization entails. And, I mean, I, I'm not just saying, like, just have a discussion about it. Like, we need to be forceful about this. What is happening to the world right now is insane. And it's been going on for unquestionably far, far too long. Uh, you, you can't trust in any of the processes that exist within the society for how to address all these issues. And, I mean, you can see this with Trump. And you can see this with all this kind of crazy shit that goes on in politics 
all across the world right now where a rising tide of fascism has been going on. It is continuing to go on and it's just unabated and we're all of this is taking place non-ironically or non-surprisingly uh, in an era of complete and utter collapse. And we're talking about ecological collapse. We're talking about climate change. We're talking about droughts caused by uh, unstable climates. And we're talking about all the consequences of uh, governments and, and political forces falling apart to try and maintain order in light of just endemic change. Uh, so we're seeing mass migrations, you're seeing warfare, you're seeing all these increasing tensions and the inability of politics to maintain it, which means that the Titan grip is there. And that also looks like nationalistic drum pounding. That looks like people demanding border walls and border fences and uh, nationalistic identities, uh, which is insane. I mean, clearly it's a, it's a, it's not very evolutionary friendly, perspective of the world or way to deal with it but it's definitely one that's not going to pan out well in a period of collapse such as what we're facing right now uh so the most important thing i think is always going to be is like just just draw it out constantly because all of these things function they continue to function because they happen in plain sight but totally unrecognized and totally unseen uh so drawing it out, and then, I mean, obviously there's a lot of kind of actions and things like that, that a lot of resistance that needs to happen, a lot of resistance that needs to take place. Uh, but about, you know, the steps a society can make, it starts with that honest realization of what is happening and the fact that something needs to be done about it to kind of start unraveling all the narratives to get to the point where we can recognize, you know, as we, we are animals, we are wild beings that are being... Uh, redirected through the civilizing process and that domestication wasn't an event but an ongoing reality and that we're all still a part of and to start to recognize exactly what that has cost us and what it means and how uh, unsustainable at a, at a basic intrinsic level civilization really is and so that's that's kind of a starting point I don't know if that really necessarily answers the question but I'm um, just responding to it and that's that's kind of what i see as a starting point if you have further questions let me know i'll definitely get into it uh this one's a little odd why do we assume symbols are inherently alienating as opposed to naturally arising uh i did ask that person what symbols they were referring to that's kind of uh a big part of that question that isn't necessarily in there i uh, would i assume uh and you know you can always be wrong about your assumptions, is that they're talking about the symbolic and the critique of symbolic thought that John Zerzan has definitely made a, a huge part of the anarcho-primitivist critique, uh, a part of the basic questioning about civilization and where it's coming from and where it's going. I don't necessarily agree with a lot of the questions that John had asked at that time, but I mean, it also, you know, those those were questions that were being asked, and we're talking primarily about the the essays that ended up being in the black and green book or a collection of John's essays called origins. Uh, and a lot of stuff is also an elements of refusal. I'd say more an elements of refusal than probably any of his other books, but these were, you know, some of the early essays talking about the symbolic. And of course he's followed up on it. Uh, it's, it's all over black and green review and wild resistance, the journals. Uh, but I, I, the, the kind of question that's being asked there it's it's a little bit tricky and it's really just because of the the way it's positioned are symbols are symbols inherently good or are they inherently bad do they come from this do they come from that it, again it really comes down to what symbol i mean if you're talking about swastika obviously it's a very different thing than when you're talking about the symbolic which can be language which can be art uh, so assuming that you're talking about symbolic culture and assuming you're talking about language and art uh, i think that it was more important of that question uh, the, the John's question when he had asked it, it was more important to me in particular, that it was about the way that these symbols and the way that our relationship with the world through symbolic thought has set us on a, a particular path. Uh, I would I would at this point say that, that symbols and symbolic art or symbolic culture, 
symbolic thought in any ways. If you're just talking about language and art, I do separate language and art from numbers, from history, from these, from capital, from these much larger concepts that are clearly, you know, we're talking thousands of years down the line from, from the origins of domestication. Uh, I, I think it's important to separate those out. And I, I have no problem with language. Uh, I don't believe language is unique to humans in any way, shape or form. Uh, I don't even necessarily believe art is unique to humans or that culture or anything about that is, is unique to humans. Uh, so I don't see that as problematic, but it doesn't mean that those things don't become more of the way of, of carrying forth a damaged culture because we get to the point where we only rely on symbols. We only rely on the symbolic thought. We only rely upon these particular senses to make sense of the world around us and in turn just deny everything else that's going on. So that's my take on the symbolic, and that's also part of the reasons why I don't deal with it quite as much uh, as John does by a long shot. Um, and it, again, this is nothing against John. I love John and uh, I love his work. But, you know, we do have our differences in approach. We do have our differences in, in emphasis. And in that case, I think it's like one of those things where the, the symbolic becomes more of an issue over time and the more that is relied upon than saying or even implying that at, at the outset of art and language that there was some kind of like poison pill. And I, I don't think John would say that necessarily either at all. Um, I, I'm pretty damn confident in saying that, that that's not really the case that somebody's after. Uh, but yeah, still, I know this has caused a lot of questions when people are looking at anarcho-primitivism or when they're hearing about anarcho-primitivism. Uh, we've heard a lot of people write off uh, anarcho-primitivism and primal anarchy in, in these kind of really obtuse, disingenuous ways of saying we're against like interaction. We're like against joy. We're against laughter. We're against talking. I mean, no, there's a difference between question and difference between critique. We're against civilization. Uh, we're against domestication. But all the questions that kind of like parse out what what that is and how that entailed is is a totally different subject. And that's one of the reasons, too, why I've been pushing for talking about primal anarchy as opposed to anarcho-primitivism. I think anarcho-primitivism, I think the anarcho-primitivist critique, while I still identify with it, uh, was more about asking these kinds of questions. And I think at this point, you know, we, we can say pretty definitively uh, where things went wrong and, uh, and what the consequences of domestication, what the consequences of sedentism have been. Uh, and again, splitting out what is a critique versus what is uh, a question or what is a line of questioning or what is, a, you know, a baseline for understanding the world. And, it's not about trying to identify what were these triggers where everything just kind of went to shit or something like that, but identifying how these processes take place and, and the similarities over time. And I think that's hugely important. And this is why I, I don't fret when I talk about human nature, uh, because I think you can see in looking at the minutia of the domestication process at every stage and every, every, form that it has taken, you can see that there are these same patterns happening over and over again. And I think what that really highlights is that this innate primal anarchy, this innate egalitarianism is a core part of who we are as a wild animal, as a social being. And that is based on being a nomadic immediate return hunter-gatherer. Uh, that's the kind of society that we have evolved for. That's the kind of relationship we have with each other and with the world, and that is where we've always thrived. So I think that's hugely important. I think that's really telling, and honestly, it's, it's also exceptionally inspiring. It's good to know that like anarchism doesn't have to be just this idea about you know how we're going to organize workers or organize factories and things like that. It's like, oh, we could actually live in a fulfilling life that doesn't have work and has all the things we want. So it's not just about what we're going to lose, but what we gain and what it is we're striving for. And it helps to understand all these different forms that civilization has taken, uh, you know, over, over five, 6,000 years, or even going back to, you know, looking at the first societies to settle and bring in domestication, uh, going back 10, 12,000 years or whatever. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that that is vastly important. I think that that is a major thing to understand. It's not just about when things went wrong, 
but what the consequences of domestication are and understanding innately that civilization, that this entire world, that nothing is a monolith. There was never this event that happened and switched things over. There was never an original sin. There's variations to everything. And even if you're looking at hierarchical indigenous societies or, th- or anything like that, uh, you know, there were still people who come from all these different perspectives and have different relationships with that society. We can't assume that uh, culture in the Pacific Northwest, that every, every person within that society saw it the same way. But then you look at our own society and you have people who are listening to a Primal Anarchy podcast and we can accept it's like, okay, there's this massive variation in how people see this entire culture and the role that we play within it. We are all still agents. We all are still a part of, of it. But like, you know, societies don't function in this way where everybody just necessarily agrees with everything. And that's one of the genius things about primal anarchy. It's one of the genius things about the way and the functionality of a nomadic hunter-gatherer society is is that the that fact that like it doesn't require everybody to agree on everything. It doesn't require everybody to view things the same and to respond the same. And there isn't a uh, there aren't decisions being made that necessarily impact every single person within that society. And there's no technology there to enforce or scale anybody's decisions or, or anything that's going on in ways that become endemic to the world. And they certainly don't lead to catastrophic climate change, initiating an anthropogenic worldwide extinction and the creation and the, the point of, that we are at in this world where upwards of 80% or more of all biomass on this planet has been taken away by civilization. Uh, so big difference. That's a, that's in a nutshell, part of the reason why this particular emphasis is, is so important to me, even though it might seem very nuanced. I'm talking about the difference between primal anarchy and anarcho primitivism, uh, and just, just the frameworks of it. It's, it's, I think it's a, the term for me at least is a better articulation of what I'm trying to do or what I'm really trying to get at and also kind of the, the baseline for where we can go. Uh, so I guess that actually kind of gets to the other question as well. What do we do? Remind ourselves that this is our baseline. This is where we're coming from. We don't have to create something new. It's all been here. It's all within us. It's just it's a core part of our being. So I hope that answers those questions. Again, if you have questions going forward, email them to black and green review. I'm sorry, black and green press at gmail.com, or you can send a letter. So before I get to anything else, I want to do something a little different here. I want to play a bit of an interview I just did recently with Patty Stonefish of Arming Sisters. And this interview is going to be in Wild Resistance number seven. Uh, which will be out this fall. The deadline for submissions is September 1st, and this issue is focusing on decolonization and anti-civilization, kind of the parallels, the differences, the overlap, uh, things like that. So I'm, I'm really excited about this issue. Uh, if you have not been familiar, so Wild Resistance is the journal of black and green right now. So uh, wildresistance.org is where all the information is about the current issues, future issues, submissions, deadlines, things like that. If you have not checked it out, definitely check that out. Also, check out Arming Sisters, and I'm just going to read a little bit off our webpage because it's the most concise way of explaining what the group is. Uh, So Arming Sisters is utilizing women's self-defense to bring about self-empowerment, self-love, and ownership of the body among indigenous women. Uh, the entire group and all the workshops are not solely focused on, on indigenous women, but it is undeniably a massive part of the group and what it is. And it's, uh, you know, the, it's, it's awesome. Uh, I mean, it's definitely a group that you should check out and arming sisters.org is the webpage, but arming sisters on like, you know, all the platforms and everything. There's a documentary that is coming out called Arming Sisters as well, which Patty is a very central figure of. Uh, and that's talking about missing and murdered indigenous women, which I have brought up on this podcast. And I will say it a million times. If you want to talk about civilization, if you want to talk about colonialism, there's no more direct and central point of contact than with the fact that missing and murdered indigenous women remains this continuous 
legacy of civilization, this continuous legacy of the frontier. And I mean, the frontier mentality, because, you know, in one of the, the largest areas where of missing murdered indigenous women, you know, we're talking about Seattle, Washington, we're talking about a city. So it's really just about this mentality, this entire approach that is ingrained into the conquering mind and the colonial mind and the civilized mind that women, particularly indigenous women, are fair game. And there's there's just really just systemic refusal to address this issue. There's a systemic refusal to see native women or to see native people in general, indigenous people in general, but particularly native women just just fly under the radar. And this is a massive issue. I will constantly talk about it. And I know there's a lot of people that have seen even stuff like the hashtag MMIW uh, or MMIWG or whatever. Uh, and be aware that is an issue and then not look into it. You have to look into this. This is a massive ongoing issue. But the documentary, the Arming Sisters documentary, it focuses on the man camps that are surrounding Bakken. Uh, and it's Bakken oil field. Uh, so a man camp is essentially... And I'm going to have Patty explain it in this this little clip of this interview. Uh, but man camp is basically just like a a cluster of men brought out to these you know generally remote locations uh, to work for the shale industry, to work for the oil industry, to work for the gas industry, all these different industries and pipeline industries. And with them is this total West frontier kind of insanity where. There's an entire culture that is just built on a foundation of assaulting, raping, and attacking, abducting indigenous women. And they know, these these men know that there's just, in this case, literally nothing that's going to be done about that. Uh, and as we get into the interview and we get to this, this section I'm going to be playing, I mean, I'm aware of this stuff, but it's it's still... Uh, it's just it is infuriating. It's just insane to see the details of it and the details of the permissibility that continues to exist. And so it's like there's a documentary being made about this. Like you constantly think these things should be addressed, even if though we, we know civilization, we see where it's going. We see what's happening in the world. But like it is it's crazy. So I, I can't keep going on about it because I'm just going to keep saying it's crazy and I just want to play this section of it and this is a, a section of the interview with Patty Stonefish talking about man camps and about what they are and what they mean and where they how they function and where they lie within this massive legacy of colonialism so the audio on Patty's end is not necessarily great. I do want to be doing more interviews on the podcast, but I haven't necessarily figured it out. The way that I record interviews for print doesn't necessarily give the best audio, which is why I've been very tempted to run audio from past interviews, but I have not because the audio is not ideal yet. But I will get there, and I'm actually hoping uh, in the near future here I'll be running at least maybe one podcast a month that is just going to be an interview because there's a lot of people out there whose work I think is awesome and I respect. And uh, that's why I do so many interviews in Black and Green Review and Wild Resistance. Uh, but I'd like to be doing more of that, which is all just a roundabout way of saying I hadn't figured that out yet. So the audio here was meant for transcription purposes only, not for playing. But this section of this interview is too important for me not to play. So that said, here's a little bit of the interview with Patty Stonefish. What What is a man camp and what is the circumstance under which they have been back on the picture or have remained in the picture, I guess you could say? Never went yeah. away. So man camps are camps outside of usually oil mining, oil mines, but also any type of mining. Anytime any sort of extraction is done, any extraction site is also, uh, with no extraction sites come higher cases of violence against women, specifically indigenous women. For example, the, so I'm from North Dakota originally, and the Bakken oil fields, when North Dakota had its oil boom, and like, you know, it's, it's kind of settled out, but still bad, in 2013, and we know that pipeline extends all the way down south, mm -hmm. and you have these man caps that, that pipeline just happens to extend through, through or very nearby many reservations. 
and a lot of extraction sites are either on or very near reservations and what this does is all right so you know like up in Bakken you have these man camps that are situated just outside of reservation boundaries with man camps come violence drugs arms dealing a whole bunch of fun stuff but this is where the law comes in the legal loopholes so in 2013 the violence against women act was reauthorized and for the first time it was going to have and it does have tribal provisions which I can't believe it took until 2013 to get any tribal provisions put in the Violence Against Women Act. We were just completely unprotected up until then. Which is insane. And then once they were put in, you know, everyone was very excited and very enthusiastic about these tribal provisions being put into VAWA. But when you read the fine print, they're very narrowly tailored to address only a few specific things. So you can only prosecute a non-native attacker if the non-native attacker lives or works within reservation boundaries, has a pre-existing relationship with a native woman or a pre-existing restraining order with a native woman. If you fall outside of that category, say your man camp and your job site are both five miles off reservation boundaries, you can basically walk into the reservation rape a native woman as long as you pass that boundary and there's not really anything there to prosecute because there's no law to even follow through on any of that and since every reservation has their own tribal law that is connected to federal law and it's a whole mess but when it comes right down to it the tribal provisions in VAWA uh, they feel like scrap laws they feel like shut up laws I mean, this sounds straight out of an old neglected treaty. It does. I mean, that... Basically the same thing. Yep. That provision is fucking insane. Holy shit. So to people who believe that the frontier has gone away... Oh, no, it's there. It's literally... Yeah, it's literally legislation. Yep. Has... So it doesn't seem like it should be hard to get traction behind at least erasing those loopholes. I mean, is that happening or is there, do you feel anything is happening in that regard or that that's even registering on like the settler's mind at all? Exactly. Uh, awareness again, circles back to awareness and education. It's not really something on minds and furthermore, in the U.S., we live in a very, what's the right word here, a very closed, you know, most people don't watch the news outside of their city, if they even watch the news. Most Americans, anyways. Most Americans have never traveled outside of their state. Most Americans don't own a passport. Most Americans have absolutely no clue what's going on outside of their immediate area, and Native America is not within that range for them unless they're on a border town even then <laughs> yeah so i mean it just makes it more insane that it's been once again put upon indigenous women to make settlers aware of the realities of the that the consequences of the reality that we're supposed to be the direct benefactors of yep exactly mm. it's ironic to say the least <laughs> Has there at least been with, with the natural gas bubble at least partially bursting and back and in some degrees lessening? Has, has that helped with the man camps or are we just seeing the exact same thing in every single scenario, including pipeline construction? I mean, it's helped with the man camps as far as the population has gone down, but really it's just the exact same cycle again and again. The pipelines are expanding. I mean, there's still construction going on on KXL, which... Is, you know, spans the whole country, well, two countries really. And it's just an ongoing thing. Same with any type of type of mining, anything of the sort. It's ongoing. I mean, the numbers may shift, but it's still there. And what we're seeing time and time again with resistance to the pipelines in particular is just like privatized military being directly involved in 
often quite often just assaulting anybody who's who's standing in the way or particularly indigenous peoples uh, is that the same kind of people that are that are working in the the oil fields and man camps um yes and no uh there's there's definitely some for sure but a lot of the uh, i you know i'd have to look at exact statistics but a lot of the personal experience and growing up in the country and a lot of the man camps a lot of the people hired are most of them have not graduated high school and we know how great the education system is regarding natives even in college i mean you have to take you have to opt to take the courses about natives so i think education is an issue there uh and it's just it's not good i mean yeah, yeah. <laughs> i mean it's it's kind of hard to be calm about it it's like you know it's not like a lack of education that makes people think like oh hey i shouldn't rape it's just yeah i mean it's the the total colonial reality that it's just like this is permissible it's just ingrained so deeply so deeply that it's like you said it's permissible it really is and seemingly encouraged so do they have they been establishing man camps to cater to that loophole in position you know it seems like it they're pretty close to (laughs) if you look at the just an example even if you just look at the route of the keystone xl pipeline and it passes through multiple spots of reservation land and i mean of course because we all know that if they try and pass it through the suburbs people are going to throw a fit but somehow it's different apparently to society seen a pipeline going through native land it's taken way less serious as seeing a pipeline go through a city which it shouldn't be i mean i guess if you're trained not to see natives you're definitely not going to see a pipeline going through their land exactly so i mean it's it's one of those things where it's kind of hard to even parse out some of this because yeah i mean there's there's no degree of this entire situation of the settler epidemic that it, it you even have to really go very far to show that this is ethnocide in practice. Yep, exactly. So again, that is from my interview with Patty Stonefish of Arming Sisters for issue seven of Wild Resistance, which will be out this fall, winter. Uh, yeah, and I can trust you can imagine from hearing that why it's hard for me to talk about it without just saying this is fucking insane. So... Uh, support their work going out to Arming Sisters and anything about missing and murdered indigenous women, dig in and make it known, make it loud. Please, it is very important. All right, so let's talk a bit about Black and Green. Let's talk a bit about fundraisers, talk a bit about Wildness and Anarchy and some of the questions I've been asking uh, about a primal anarchy primer uh, and things like that. Uh, let's start with the fundraiser. So again, that'll be kicking off hopefully this week. At this point, I'm honestly, I'm just waiting for uh, an estimate for a possible shirt that I'll be including in the uh, fundraiser, the Kickstarter. Uh, and I, yeah, it's it's already Thursday, so I'd like to see it by this weekend, but you know, I'm not necessarily sure that'll happen. I also don't want to hold it off forever because the the book is pretty much totally ready to go, and it's going to take a month. Uh, probably for the fundraiser to go before I actually send the book out to print. So I'd really like to get that rolling. Uh, and yeah, like I said, it's hopefully sooner than later. Uh, so you might be asking yourself, Black and Green is a business. Why or perceivably, potentially a publisher or a business like in that regard, why do we need to do a fundraiser? Uh, the problem is, is that Black and Green, as far as a business goes, is a shitty business uh not just because of publishing not just because of any of that but because the way that it's set up the way that it's run has always been based on very anarchist principles and that typically is based on spreading the word not just making money or making the business function the only reason black and green has made this far and i know i've said this on the podcast before is because I've had some people who have been a huge help. I've had some people who have donated a lot of money to help things going, to keep things going. And I am hugely thankful and eternally grateful for that. Uh, Part of it, too, is just that I've worked a ton to 
maintain it and to keep it all going. And because of where I live and because of a number of other things, it's it's not really possible for me to do that anymore. So black and green has been at a point where it needs to stand on its own defeat. And it currently is not. It's a, a massive debt load right now. Uh, and I'll, I'll probably get a bit more about that whenever I launch the fundraiser. Uh, but as it stands, it's it's just a lot of debt and it weighs pretty heavily on me. Uh, I'm not going to stop. I'm never going to stop doing it. But the more I can stand on its own two feet, the better off it'll be. And the, the more I can get things going and keep things rolling. Uh, and, you know, potentially we always turn the page and get to the point where uh, the project can roll a lot more. It's, it's built upon the idea that things kind of constantly move. Uh, just to give you an idea about about the e- economics of black and green, I can go into great detail about all of it. I can tell you I'm pretty well-versed in the debt of black and green and also how it functions and how it moves and why as a business it's really a shitty idea. Uh, it, it would be if it were a business, which it isn't, uh, and, and all of that. Uh, so I'll just go ahead and, and explain it. So the idea was basically... The cost of the book times two is a retail. I'm sorry, is the wholesale price, and the the cost of retail times two is wholesale. And you can look at it, and you can think from a theoretical perspective that means 75 percent of you buying a book is potential profit. The problem with that is that because the print runs aren't, you know, what a, a mass publisher would be, it's not multiple thousands. It's typically around a thousand, sometimes less. Uh, you know, we would need to be moving a ton of books at all times to make that make sense. But the problem is, is that, you know, I have to pay up front for the books uh, and that, you know, the entirety of this works on trying to keep the payments ahead of accruing interest. So we're talking about interest and stuff like that now. It's a whole other thing. I'm not going to get into that. But, you know, black and green starts costing more and more money over time if, you know, we don't move a ton of books at once. And the other part about that is is that I, I do the pricing the way I do for a, a very clear reason. One is that I just want to keep things at a low enough price point for everybody. And I have people tell me all the time, it's like, books are expensive. I'm like, oh, oh fucking I know. <laughs> they might cost you 12 or 16 bucks. They cost me three or 4000 uh, I I can certainly assert that they are expensive. Uh, but, you know, they can't. They can't lose money that the the way that that I had done this before and the way that I had looked at this before, but the other part of it is is that, you know, of that potential seventy five percent that you could be looking at as profit, uh, you know, if if somebody publishes a book under black and green, I give them ten percent of the print run. That's that's payment. There's no, there's no money to be given out, so I give out books. Uh, but when it comes to the journal, when it comes to anything else, uh, I mail out. A good books, a bit of books for reviews. I mail them out to contributors. I mail them out to people who helped with uh, copy editing and things like that. So right away, there's a huge cost that goes into getting books out to people for review and getting books out to people to help spread the word, hopefully. Uh, and mailing those books is a big cost. It costs, on average, within the U.S., between two seventy-five and three fifty to mail a single book, not including the mailer. So. You know, if we're talking about a $12 book, then right away, uh, half of what we're looking at is is cost before we put back in the added cost of getting a book out there and promoting a book and things like that. Uh, so the entire principle of black and green, the black and green pricing was based on the idea of like you put out a book, you can uh, theoretically, you put out one book, the sales of that book could put out could recomp the, that book and then put out another. So theoretically, because of contributions and things like that, one book should equal two. The problem is is that the cost of printing books and the cost of shipping books in particular continues to rise. So Trump fucked the trade deals with Canada, which whatever, um, last year, but it jacked up the cost of books like a, a dollar each uh, because I get printed in Canada. And the books are all printed on recycled paper. There are things that I just don't want to cut corners on. It's important to me uh, that if we're going to be producing, you know, something that is ultimately a consumable product or whatever you want to call it, 
that it's as long lasting as possible and that the presentation, the format and everything about it is meant to last as long as the ideas do. And it's, you know, that's why we have books that are 15 years old and they're still holding up just fine. I don't want to do print on demand. I don't want to cut corners and, you know, we'll keep doing the recycled paper and everything like that. That It's not that much of a cost. It's not worth even me thinking about it. It's just, that's just what we do. Um, but little things like that can can really jack up prices, which is why uh, Wild Resistance number six was about 60, 70 pages less than number five, I think, but costs four dollars more is because the cost of shipping from Canada uh, jumped massively and it added a large cost to the book itself. Uh, so that's why the prices are what they are, and that's based on a, a very uh, straightforward pricing idea that I have and the principle of it being pretty dated because it doesn't account for the fact that the cost of paper went up four times last year. Uh, it doesn't account for the fact that the cost of shipping went up as much as it did. Uh, and also the problem is, is that the books uh, tend to grow in size. Uh, so I think, you know, like Gathered Remains, I think it's like 360 pages. The second edition for Wildness and Anarchy is 336 pages. Uh, Wild Resistance number six was 220 pages or something around there. Number Black and Green Review number five was like 280 pages. So even like when you look at Black and Green Review... I based the pricing I was selling issues one and two for like $8 or something like that. And they were 110 pages. Um, and I built up subscriptions is one of the reasons I dropped subscriptions was because I based it off a 110 page book by issues three and four. It was double the size. Uh, so the, again, like the costs just don't work that well. And it's just the way that it's, it's working and the way it's principled. There is a, a a kind of direct competition between the idea of the project being self-sustaining and also following this principle of trying to keep the books at a low enough price for everybody and also doing things like, you know, effectively eating the shipping, uh, which again is pretty considerable. And in some cases, the cost of shipping can be more than the cost of printing the book itself. Uh, so there's a lot of factors in all of that. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, people can look in and say, it's like, well, you're selling all these books and, and all this shit. And, uh, making money, and I have had people make hilarious accusations about Black and Green being some massive business and actually making money off of books. I make negative money. <laughs> Anybody else who prints with Black and Green will do better than I do. A distributor who buys books, and I, and I do the wholesale pricing because I've done distribution for books and records and stuff like that since the early 90s. Um, I know how hard it is to run a small distro. I know how hard it is to run a table. That's why it's like... I make it very straightforward. If you're buying five books or more, half off. You're on a table, I'm not going to punish you because you can't order 100 books. I'm not going to give tiered price points. This is what the wholesale is. Nobody at this point gets a better deal than that. Unless, you know, you contribute and you get a free book or something, but it's not, not for distributors. Uh, I just want to make it cut and dry like that. That's important to me. Uh, but again, it, you know, the entire way that it works is it means that a lot of books have to sell and a lot of things have to keep moving and the books do well. There's, there's periods where the district does actually, you know, pretty, pretty significant, but if you're selling a $12 book or $16 book and you're looking at thousands and thousands and thousands of hours worth of debt, it takes a lot just to clear things. And so, you know, even things like shirts, uh, you know, they theoretically could make some more money, but I, I don't do big enough print runs and I try to keep things moving um, effectively, like if I sell 30 shirts, then that can offset the cost of me mailing, uh, 15 books abroad for review copies or sample copies or things like that, or for contributors and editors. It's like the cost of, of black green just, just continues to go up. And right now the websites alone, I think it's like four or 500 a year. Uh, and then, you know, kind of basic administrative costs is buying packaging, buying things like that. There's there's a lot that goes into it, and I'm extremely thankful for people who have helped out, and I'm extremely thankful for people who kick in, and there are a good bit at this point of uh, people who donate monthly on PayPal, people who occasionally Venmo, or people who have signed up under Patreon, uh, and the Patreon is under my name personally, it's under Kevin Tucker, uh, and all that information is on the website, it's on the Wild Res or the 
Primal Anarchy webpage on kevintucker.org. All the black and green related webpages have that information. That stuff goes a long way. Uh, but also there is a lot of cost. So, you know, if you're looking at it and you're trying to figure out why should I be supporting this or why, why should I be doing this? Can't you just sell more stuff or can't you just kind of shift the pricing? And I could shift the pricing. Uh, I could do things like add on shipping. Uh, but, you know, my goal is to get this stuff out there further. It's out to get it out there more widely and to, to do it in the best way as possible. And I've just, you know, if, if people can help out, then it just helps everything go along a lot further. Uh, and if people think that I should raise the price on books, then if you buy the books, you could also donate money. But the, the main things about it are is that the, the, the entire endeavor is expensive. I'm not going to stop doing it. I'm doing my best to keep it going. I'm constantly thinking about different ways to kind of evolve it and realizing as well things like blackandgreenpress.org, which is like it should be the main website, is a horrible website and it's not updated and it's not easy to work with but i just haven't taken the time to figure out exactly what form i want that to take or what form another website that might come about um could take but i constantly feel like black and green is teetering uh towards being something bigger and being something better and and having even even doing consistent podcasts and things like that instead of having to compete with my my nighttime writing regiment which i I, I, on average, I spend about 40, 50 hours, sometimes 60 hours working on writing and working on black and green stuff every week. And that's all things that happen at times, such as now it's two o'clock in the morning and that's when I work. Um, so the more that the black and green could stand on its own two feet, the more that it could support having me work during the day or having me work more often or, or get more out there and get more things going, get more of things, uh, promotional things, whatever you want to call it, stickers or anything like that. Like for a while now, they've just been things I, I couldn't afford to take on any more debt. So I just didn't do them. Although I did get a bunch of full color uh, stickers made for the first time for the Primal Anarchy podcast. It's, I've made a new logo that's got Ellie Joe Gill's art, which is also in for Wildness and Anarchy version two on the cover and inside and she is awesome and it is awesome art and I'm very stoked on it so much so that I ordered a bunch of full color stickers and I will be getting those actually today. Uh, so I'll have more on the website and stuff like that about getting those sorts of things. And that'll also be something that I add into uh, the fundraiser uh, once that gets going and things like that and all the orders and pre-orders, but there's all these things I'd like to be doing. And I just, at this point, honestly, I can't, I can't afford to take on any more debt. So it kind of guides the direction that, that things take and the means, um, you know, even, even which books get focused on. Uh, and so that brings me to the other thing. I brought up questions last time about what people would like to see. And I sent an email and I've asked in a number of places what people would like to see as far as maybe like a primal archive primer. And I had been talking about an anarchist primer called Roots for a while uh, there, there was a couple things about it that held me up, and I actually ended up writing a lot of that book numerous times, but I kind of changed my idea about the target audience and what it was going to be aimed at and with the tone of it and everything like that. Uh, it, it, it's a relatively easy book for me to write, but at the same time, it just takes time. Um, and my, my views about it had changed drastically. And honestly, when it comes down to it, if I'm choosing between writing primers and writing something like I've got a country of gods and country, which is very, very research heavy, very, very detail oriented and much different in its approach. I'm going to go towards of gods every time. And that's, you know, my books that have come out of the past couple of years, uh, gathered remains and cold personality are more reflective of that. And again, I kind of feel like the spirit of primal anarchy is very, very much part of those books and I also feel that For Wild Anarchy is, is a lot more of a kind of introductory uh, span and scope uh, than Gathered Remains. But I mean, I realistically both are. Gathered Remains is just much more detailed uh, and much more specific in everything and much more developed and nuanced than For Wild Anarchy. Uh, but, you know, what are you going to do? The stuff I wrote when I was younger. And I can also say that the new edition much, much better than the first. I'm very glad to have finally made some corrections and some very tough edits 
I know I've talked about this before, but I think people are going to be stoked when they actually see it. And also, the cover art is really awesome. I'm very stoked for it. Eternal gratitude towards to Ellie Joe Gill. Very amazing. Very happy about that. But yeah. So that's the focus of the fundraiser. But again, the, the larger goals of it are going to be built around getting black greens on feet. And that gives me back to this question of a primer. Uh, is something that I think I could do fairly easily. And I know the question I put out is whether people wanted something that was more broad um, or if something wanted something more specific. So basically, like, do you want the writing to be like gathered remains where it's all meticulously detailed and cited and everything like that? Or would you like kind of a, a more sweeping generalization overview? Not to say it doesn't have details, but something that's more resource heavy instead of more citation heavy. And I've had a lot of people respond to that. And I think people, there are a number of people who would like to see that very uh, heavy edition, uh, which we're talking about, like, you know, a one or 200 page book versus a three or 400 page book. Uh, and that's awesome. Uh, but I'm honestly a bit more reluctant about writing that book because I am very particular about recycling sources and recycling references and recycling things like that. And I've covered a lot of that ground in Gathered Remains, Cold Personality, and I'm covering a lot more of it, like a, a ton more of it in Of Gods and Country. So realistically, if I'm talking about writing this more heavy, this heavier book, then it means it's going to jump in line with all the books I'm currently writing or planning on writing, of which there's always about five or six, and the first two or three I'm really, really excited about and I haven't talked about yet, uh, aside from Of Gods and Country. So... What I think would be most important, most practical, and also based on the feedback I got would be to write something that is more of a resource-heavy overview than just insanely detailed. And again, I'm not talking about a 30-page pamphlet. I'm talking about a 1-200-page book. Uh, so overview, but it's still very detailed. Um, if this fundraiser goes really well, uh, and if people find or are interested in helping out and getting things rolling, uh, and keeping things going, of course, there's the fundraiser and there's Patreon and uh, all, all the other stuff, all the other ways of donating that are on the website. If that gets going, it could be a lot easier for me to free up more time to be working on that book uh, and getting that out and getting that done. And then hopefully Black and Green getting in a better position to put that out once it's ready. Uh, so I, I think that's all realistic. Uh, I'm going to be also covering... A lot of that same ground on the podcast but it won't be the same as a book uh and i'm, I'm not going to read the whole book i'll just be kind of going through it maybe to a certain degree kind of faq style uh but also just kind of like taking bits and pieces of it and uh addressing them on the podcast and if people have specific questions that they like address of course you can always send them and i'll deal with them on that regard but uh, i i haven't put a ton of thought into it yet uh, and I, I haven't figured out a flow or anything like that for the book. I haven't gotten to a lot of the details of it. Just been at this point, kind of weighing out what people would be interested in and also what is useful and what is not. Uh, so that's where that's at, and that's where things are in general with black and green, um, and why I'm doing the fundraiser and why there's always questions about uh, funding and things like that, and also a big emphasis, huge emphasis on my part to tell people. If you want to support Black and Green, buy the books. I don't care if you give them to friends. I don't care if you hand out your copy and it passes around a million people. The important thing is always on the books. That's the center of all this. That's the core of all of this. That's why I do it all. I mean, the podcasts are great. I know these reach an audience that could possibly be very different than the people who are going to read books. But the podcast is me turning on a microphone and talking. And it's not refined it's barely edited uh if if at all uh and it's more just me kind of going on tangents and i know a lot of people are interested in that but like this is not really an, uh a great way to gauge my interest as a writer my focus is as a writer which is an arduous process which uh, a couple podcasts ago i went through a whole thing about my writing processes uh but that's like a, a whole other thing, just like a, a very painstaking, meticulous process where this is just, let me turn on the microphone and kind of fly off the handle for a bit often, even though these past 
I think four or five podcasts have been pretty straightforward on particular topics such as this or the book recommendations or um, even talking about uh, Ted's Ship of Fools on the last episode. But I don't want to undermine the importance of these things. I don't want to undermine any of it. I just want to keep doing more of it and be able to focus on all these different versions and all these different variants and different approaches and methods and things like that for getting this stuff out there. So I would hope and I would like that Black Moon gets to the point where it can support more. It can support more projects. It can support more time. And it can lead to you know, more and better websites, websites that help get more information out there. And even even stuff as simple as the fact that like I I I don't put much from Wild Resistance or Black and Green Review on the internet, uh, and in general I don't put a lot of content on the internet. Uh, in that regard, I've been doing a little bit more, and I have posted some on Medium. And if you go to kevintucker.org, there is there are links there for some writings that I have put up on Medium, uh, which is all I think it should all be free. Uh, and also on this web page, I'm sorry the the wildresistance.org webpage. Uh, I, I want to be able to keep that going in a way that's not just going to create more content, which is meaning that it's going to be something that just kind of makes a blip maybe for a second and then it's come and gone. Um, I, I focus on books because I think that the impact of it and the format of it is more in line with the content, more in line with the approach. So that's why I push so heavily on the books. Uh, and that's also why I don't just dump a bunch of stuff online for free uh, or, or just dump it online because I, I don't want people to engage it in it as just kind of content as basically just another headline and then maybe a couple of lines or a couple of quotes or something like that. I want people to like take it in as an experience. Um, and of course, it's not free to make. So that's there's, there's a number of aspects to it, a number of sides to it. It's not like it's about making money. It's just about supporting the projects. It's just about keeping things going and getting more from it and and doing anything possible to expand this critique. And I have to say, and I've said it before, uh, the Journal Wild Resistance Black and Green Review, I, I really am proud of what we've done. I, I think it's great. And I think that there's probably no other anarchist journal uh, that has expanded its the scope of a critique in the way that this journal has in the, in the amount of time it has. I mean, it's going to, it's going on five years and, uh, seven issues. This, this issue will be seven. Uh, so yeah, that's it in a nutshell. Uh, that's really all I'm going to get to tonight. I'm going to have the fundraiser come out hopefully again, hopefully this weekend. Uh, so it'd be, you know, the next couple of days, but we'll, we'll see. It might go into next week. Uh, I'm not going to hold it up forever for their shirt or something. Uh, but I am interested in, in hearing people's feedback and what they might be looking for as a perk, what would make them interested in, in getting behind it, and if you just want to tell me to fuck off and whatever, I've heard it. Uh, but, yeah, if, if you're interested in supporting, if you're curious about it, this is more information as to why uh, something you might perceive as a business is happening to say, please help us more or please support us more. And getting people to listen to the podcast, getting people to read the books, getting people to be aware of them, all that stuff goes a really long way. And unfortunately, you know, reviewing things on Amazon, reviewing things on like the iTunes store, whatever, all these different outlets where things exist and Goodreads, that goes a long way. Uh, selling stuff on Amazon does not. And selling stuff on Amazon, you have to sell a lot of it to make any money. And, that, and sometimes it, it's usually it's just not worth it. It's a very costly thing. It's kind of annoying. And of course, Bezos is a fucking evil prick, uh, potentially artificial intelligence too. So, I mean, but still, if you're on there, if you review the books, if there's other places you can review the books, you can promote them, talk about them with your friends, talk about them with people in real life, talk about them with people on the internet. That's how this stuff spreads. And we've gotten a long way from that kind of engagement. And there's still a very long way to go. So anything that can be done to help spread the word, anything that can be helped done to push forward the critique, to give more responses, to give more feedback, totally welcome to it. Uh, that can push for this podcast as much as does the journal, as much as does any of the books and even the websites. Uh, so if you have questions, if you have comments, blackandgreenpress at gmail.com. Again, that's blackandgreenpress at gmail.com. 
And then there's there's contact information as well on blackandgreenpress.org, blackandgreenreview.org, wildresistance.org, primalanarchy.org, and kevintucker.org. Probably too many websites. But either way, it's all there. Uh, so I'm going to end this here. And I will hopefully have some more information or do another episode sooner than later. Uh, and also, I'm very much looking forward to doing more interviews. Uh, but thank you for listening. Uh, Prime Monarchy Podcast is part of the Channel Zero Anarchist Podcast Network. I'm extremely thankful of everybody else who's on there and everybody else who's been involved in pushing Channel Zero. And also, if you're interested in supporting projects like this, Channel Zero could use your help just as much uh, as Black and Green or as any of the other podcasts that are on there. So that's it for now, and I appreciate you listening, and I will talk to you next time.